Hi, hi, John Biddle here. Sorry, forgot who I was then. <laughs> uh, and welcome to number three post of Workshop Wednesday and the Human Garbage Bin. Um, yeah, it's kind of the title of a book that I'm kind of in the process of writing at the moment um, about uh, my journey through therapy. Um, and although we talked about my past as a child and we're going to focus over the next couple of weeks over you know the five corners of complex post traumatic stress disorder i think you can we kind of need to dial back and look at one of my biggest symptoms with the issues that i faced throughout my adult life and that's eating um and this has been quite difficult piece to write um if you're reading this if you're listening to this this is quite a difficult thing to talk about because you know a lot of the memories a lot of the issues that i face daily occur on a kind of a subconscious level if that makes sense and sitting and thinking about things at a deeper level it has kind of exposed a lot of those demons and um, this week, whilst I've been writing this, I've been a bit isolated and elements of addiction and elements of the isolate, separate and destroy kind of thing has reared its head a little bit. The inner critic has been, I can feel the inner critic is constantly there and, you know, it's been, it has been a tough week because it's, you've got to, in order to get the stuff out in order for you to read it and harmonize with it it requires me to be truthful with myself and that's just something that i find quite difficult given my upbringing so we're going to go through the whole thing and uh, I will be okay so it'll be fine so don't worry um and you will be okay too some of this might for you as a listener or reader this could be a little distressing um but there are simple coping mechanisms and that you can use in order to get your mind back on an equilibrium if that makes sense so let's just dive in so eating unifies all of us doesn't it you know the the old age old saying is that um the one thing that connects us all is death and taxes but actually it's four things isn't it is birth death taxes and also eating we all need to eat and that's a basic human instinct really we all must eat in order to survive um and it's like a rule we have to do it um but as a medical professional myself you know we eat because we we've got to maintain that what we call the bmr or the base uh, basal metabolic rate which is we need to eat a certain number of calories in order for those autonomic things that we rely on like uh, heartbeat, breathing, digestion, healing, our immune system. Everything needs energy and our body gets energy from the food which we eat. So, so without nutrition, these fundamental life-preserving systems won't work without nutrition and we see this in patients in the hospital where they are what we call deficit where their body has been compensated for so long for people that have not 
not good, good diets or um, are malnourished. We see a whole host of chronic and acute diseases set in because the body requires nutrition. It needs to be nurtured. It needs nutrition in order to survive. So why is, consum- why is the consumption of food such an emotive subject for so many people, including me? Um, currently, there's three eating disorders. You've got anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, or BED. And this is the label that I've been told to wear as a, from a clinical psychologist after I had a few sessions with a couple of guys. And being labelled... Or, no, I'm not going to use the word being labelled, or using the label for something that I don't want hasn't made my processing of this any easier. In fact, it, it created a bit of a challenge for me because I've been working with Jane, my therapist, for nine years now. And when I went to go and see the clinical psychologists for... Um, some issues relating to my diabetes and for a surgical pathway that I was going on. Being labelled this by the clinical psychologist actually took about a year for me to come out of the swamp of that. It really did affect me and it really opened a door for suicide ideation. This was back in, um, I think it was around about 2018, I, I think. I can't remember now. It was about 2018 and it took me a long time to get over it. But even if we dial back further, when I started my therapy, um, I didn't realise I had a toxic relationship with food. Um, As a 40-something person, man, um, I didn't even know that having a toxic relationship was even a thing. And so in order for me to understand that, I had to travel back in time to where, on the outside, everything seemed okay, normal, but behind closed doors. I was living with a monster and figurative use the word monster because I don't I'm not labeling my father as a monster um I'm labeling my inner critic and the demons in which were born out of the abuse that I received as a child uh, is my monster Uh, but anyway my father was a military man um, and I was brought up through the cold war in Germany which was quite interesting Um, his absence was something which was kind of normal because soldiers were just away all the time um, practicing saber-rattling against the Russians Um, and this was appreciated by me but not so much from my mum always she uh, you know my father was always working um, and so was my mum as well so both my sister and I were latchkey kids like as most kids in the 70s were Um, and in my father's own admission the army always came before his family which that's the kind of thinking you can't get away with today. But anyway, um, my mum wasn't particularly engaged in nor maternal and leaving my sister and I to our own devices, obviously two young kids, um, well, you know, it was quite easy for us to drift into wayward behaviour and this became a trigger for my father. And the only emotion we could demonstrate was happiness. Um, you know, we were your classic Generation X children where the only emotion you can display was happiness you know you couldn't be sad you couldn't be angry you know you couldn't even be overexcited you know you just had to be happy and if you weren't you faced the wrath of your parents I certainly did um but my father's abusive behavior provided a state of constant fear in me um I was in a constant state of fight or flight 
And this was only relieved when he deployed for six months. Uh, but when he came back from wherever he went, um, he was home for weeks on leave where the fear of the, fear and loathing would then set in again and I would retract and become a different person. He, of course, wouldn't see his hard-parenting as abuse and, to be honest, neither did I until the therapist said his behaviour was ghastly and unacceptable. Um, and looking at it, it was because as, by my own efforts as a father to my own children... Um, my wife taught me a really valuable lesson um, and it was quite interesting isn't it because uh, we were renovating a house at the time and my son was very very young and he had a you know one of those small cans of coat you get on a plane it was a really really diddy can of coat but it was I was so hot and it was just on the side and I just necked it Jordan got really upset and he walked off to his room and I didn't see any of this and he was my son Jordan crying and um, my wife is um, very sort of empathic and she clocked it and followed him upstairs and Anyway, about five minutes later, Jordan came downstairs with his face wet with tears and his face angry. And he laid into me, you know, you drank my coke, you did this and you did that. And it really occurred to me that this was quite important for Jordan to do as a child. He, I'd done something that had upset him and he had every right to be upset. And he had every right to come to me and challenge me about my behaviour. And that was a really important lesson for me to learn because if the shoe was on the other foot, that would have been a very different story. Um, if I'd have gone up to my father and told him that he'd upset me, uh, you know, it would have only have gone one way. But anyway, yeah, as a child, throughout my childhood, I had a healthy appetite. Um, I ate a lot, and when I mean a lot, I were, it wasn't to excess, it was more to capacity. I am the all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant's worst nightmare. I remember once entering a Chinese restaurant and the owner of the place said, I should charge you double. Um, as rude as this is, they weren't wrong. I would eat a lot and I'd eat till it hurt. The number of plates I'd have stacked up in front of me wasn't actually human. Motion regulated my reflex to eat and it wasn't until the therapy started in my 40s that I get to understand this. A life of self-abuse had left a trail of destruction through my health, my kids, my relationship with my wife and my spiritual self. As a boy, it singled me out. I always was the big lad in the class and the one who stood out. It wasn't by design due to the abuse at home. I was overly insecure as well as introverted as a child. I had I had friends, very close ones, um, but anybody outside of my friendship that would join us, I would shrink and my whole demeanour would change. Gone would be the goofing about boisterous boy um, with confidence and a level of assertiveness to someone who hid in the shadows of my other friends until the threat um, no longer became a threat. But then, but when it came to food, um, I didn't understand the word no. I've not, I've had enough. It wasn't in my vocabulary. I would eat and combined with the inner critic, food becomes more of a crutch than a junk. The eating becomes such, the weight gain is inevitable. Um, and when you're sharing the same space with a covert passive aggressive narcissist, uh, with a propensity for violence, the weight becomes another target for the abuser. And that was clearly, as a child, it was a problem for my father. You know, I was dragged out on runs. As a 12-year-old, I was dragged out on runs with soldiers and dragged around the route um, where I'd be throwing my guts up and being mercilessly pushed by supposedly somebody who loved me. And was this tough love? I'm not so sure. I don't know how I processed this. The only thing I found was food. The only thing which gave me comfort in my own home was food. 
These thoughts I have about my past are an uncomfortable truth, but they twist my guts and toxic shame tries to manifest itself with an emotional flashback. Time being the true healer along with therapy, I have coping mechanisms in place so I can talk about these things without them affecting me. And this is pretty momentous in itself. And you've got to understand that trauma never leaves us. If you are exposed to trauma, either a child or an adult, that never leaves you, that lives with you. Um, and it can fester if it's not processed in the right way. The vicious inner critic weirdly isn't there to hurt you, which we're going to go um, in, um, I think next week, we're going to go in deeper into inner critic work. Your inner critic wants you to actually be okay, which is a kind of dichotomy because your inner critic can be so hurtful and vicious, but it's actually like an angry nan telling you that you shouldn't wear that, you know, you shouldn't eat that food and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. They tell the truth without sugarcoating it, I feel. And this inner critic grew inside me as abuse started in order to preserve me by adapting to the world around me. So my inner critic developed in order to modulate my behaviour and keep me on the straight and narrow uh, and on a pathway that wouldn't upset my abuser. But in the face of abandonment evolves into an appetite which can't be curbed and as a young adult in the army um, the level of fitness I was doing always outweighed the calorie intake. Um, you know I was probably consuming six, seven thousand calories a day in the army but I was burning that easily per day. But it wasn't until I left the army and I kept eating the same number of calories um, without the exercise and the weight started to pile on is you know it's simple maths isn't it um you know you you whatever you consume if you don't burn that off in some way um it's gonna stick about so when i hit my 30s i did hit rock bottom my eating was out of control my suicide ideation was out of control everything was affected um, and i didn't stop you know i still saw i didn't see my eating as a problem and i would eat and i just keep eating it wasn't until uh, I was still trying to nurture the petrified boy inside of me, the child, the inner child of me, who had had a lifetime of pain, who trusted no one and was still carrying the corner of my soul. I would overeat, secretly eat, find opportunities to eat, plan my eating with or without Sam. You know, my consummation of food was completely out of control. And even when the therapy started, it took a whole year for me to come to a realisation that my eating was a problem a whole year. So addressing the problem created a challenge all of its own. The frightened little boy in me reacted with folded arms and jutting out chin, you know, that classic child sat on the sofa. Uh, the small boy in me was angry, you know. No longer was I able to overeat. It was all I heard from doctors, family members, you know. Um, the only thing this child knew was how to eat. Uh, it had been getting his love and nurturing from a lifetime of overeating. The habits of secretly eating now brought on a toxic shame, augmented self-loathing and a nagging inner critic which was, became so vicious it would make me feel nauseous. All of this came down to programming and the programming I wild into the neuroplasticity of my subconscious. The first thing I needed to understand, I was now the adult. The child wasn't in charge of my emotions any longer. It was my job as the man to take my scared inner child by the hand and show him that I was in control and everything would be okay. The next step was forgiveness. And it's kind of hard to forgive yourself and your abuser in order to step into the light. Actually, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do, and it's not over yet. I've still got to come to terms with quite a lot of things, 
Um, and in this fast-paced world of quick fixes, me isn't just going to be fixed just yet. And, and a lot of people are confused by that. How can you forgive the people that abused you? And you've got to understand that, that his abuse has come from a place of unwellness himself. And I do forgive. I can't forget because I'm living the consequences of that behaviour. But I do forgive and I do see my father in white light and I just can't have him in my life for for a whole variety of reasons. When you deconstruct the behaviour of overeating, it's down to habits. You know, it is literally just habits. I worked with a, a cognitive th- therapist, Amos. You know, he spoke quite a lot of truth about eating disorders, which is what he specialised in. And, you know, understanding that actually your behaviour for overeating is just down to a series of habits. And we form habits through repetition. And this repetition is something that we cling on to because it gives us security, purpose. Something familiar in a world where unfamiliar opens the door to the demons. You can't shy away from these habits. By not fulfilling the habits requirement, you're steered through a complex myriad of inner critic and self-loathing, constantly guiding you to make subconscious decisions to eat. Deconstructing the habit further, you expose its true intent, and the habit addiction is an entity in itself, and the addiction wants to destroy me or you. Um, I picture my addiction in my head as a rickety old Victorian house with a series of badly painted green doors. Each door opens a new line of addiction. When each door is opened, I know the addiction is brewing in my head. Um, I just need a catalyst. And it could be an argument with my wife. It could Some guy could cut me off on the roundabout. I could just have a shit day at work. Or, you know, there's no money in the bank. Or there's no... Um, someone rejects you on some level. But it doesn't matter who, what, why. The point is, if the addiction gets any foothold in my mind, it's like peeling the healing scab off a cut. Uh, the spiral starts with the sole aim to isolate, separate and destroy. It was during these times with no coping mechanisms or understanding of what was happening. I'd isolate to allow the addiction to direct me and control me. For me, it was food and sex. And although I have the sex kind of under control, the food is still my biggest challenge. Um, to be safe from the self-abuse of eating, I have to be consciously aware and present. Living in the now, addiction uses the past as the pain and the future of the as the anxiety to keep me heading towards that isolate, separate and destroy mantra. Addiction cannot be in your present if you allow it. It's simple as that. Buying a sandwich at the gas station because I had a shit day is my past or driving to work and heading into a shit day is my future. It's just what my addiction orders. It's not my reality, right? Consciously thinking at this exact point is okay, but can I buy those sandwiches or that chocolate bar? But what does it look like in a week's time if I do this every day? What about in a month or in a year or in 10 years? What does it look like? The inner child is programmed to have that hit of love, security and nurture through the food it wants you to buy right there and then. But in the long game, your addiction doesn't want you to think and decisions are made as a reflex. Without any thought, no effort is made to rationalise your decisions. You just reach for that sandwich or you reach for that chocolate bar and you consume it. And before you realise you're screwing up the wrapper in the car, remember, addiction is trying to kill you. It's not your friend and your inner child has a quasi-understanding of what is normal because it's had a lifetime of abuse. You've got to give your little child a break. 
This is where the hard yards of recovery come into play. You first have to consciously forgive yourself, self-talk your inner child and telling yourself things will be okay, you're not going to die if you don't eat the sandwich. Tell your child you're in control and everything will be okay. The inner critic is overpowering, phone a friend or do something to distract and this can occur multiple times throughout the day. Your future self, I, I actually counted a few months ago, I was moving house at the time so it was really stressful and the amount of times my addiction circled back to abuse yourself was over 72 times and that was just in one day where I was consciously aware of what I was thinking it's a battle and it's exhausting but taking a step back and appreciating what you have reverses this darkness and when you see things in your life which you love the darkness can't permeate gratitude is the kryptonite to your isolation and your addictions will hate you more for it the inner voice becomes more urgent more self-loathing occurs you're already fat so just one more and hit that diet tomorrow it'll be okay it's not okay your emotions and the inner critic will be on full offensive every second of the day until you've lost everything including you to make your mind work in a healthy way will require a resolve you think you might not have and remember if you think you can't you're right Applying these tools to my situation isn't easy. Some days I'm tired, I've had a stressful day, I worry about everything and I, and I am one of life's worriers, uh, which is another hang up from my childhood. I agonise to the point of paralysis over how people perceive me, which is nuts, isn't it? My ability to engage on a social level is impossible without high levels of anxiety, shame and a pinch of self-loathing. Remember those green doors open up if I let it and allows the addiction back into my life. So even going to the pub on a Friday night after work is a challenge for me because of how people perceive me and um, and I can in in my professional setting I'm very assertive and I speak a lot and I'm very articulate and I know my subject and I'm heartfelt in everything that I do professionally but when it comes to a social environment I'm actually bankrupt with anything to say because I feel I don't have any or anything of value to say and that's something I'm working on you know but the road I'm traveling is long it's bumpy and it's a tough gig I could have sat back and not bothered with the truth and it, but if I had done this I think the reaper would have come to fetch me far too soon in life I feel very grateful to be alive today and I don't think I would have been alive five, six years ago. And I genuinely do believe that. Um, and remember, I know I was, you know, and I always constantly remember this because I am such a powerful energy. I know I was never designed to fit in. I was designed to stand out. And, you know, I have something the world wants and I'm not finished giving it. So I just have to dig deep and ignore the hate in my head and keep plowing ahead while living in the present. So that's kind of my eating issues and you know this is a whole it's a massive subject and it's something that i'm gonna keep circling back to because i one i find it fascinating and two i find it quite helpful for me because it makes me relive the conversations that i've had with my therapist and uh, going over my notes that i've had with jane and with amos and with um the clinical psychologist it's all very valuable stuff because, you know, you've got to get leverage on how you think and how you behave in this world. Because up until nine years ago, my entire opinion on how this world was spinning on its axis was wrong. 
and um, I think I'm getting there but it takes time and it takes patience and um, next week we're going to talk um, about some inner critic work which is I find equally as fascinating and it's something that we all have to deal with so have a great rest of the week and um, and I'll speak to you soon stay frosty